You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. Our first reading this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 13. It's the section right after what's printed in your bulletin, but you can find it on page 1015 of your Bible. Again, it's 1 Peter 2, verses 13 to 25. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The word of the Lord. And now please stand for the reading of the gospel. The gospel reading is Mark chapter 15, verses one through five. You can find it on page 852 of your Bible. This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. The gospel of the Lord. Amen. Let's be seated. Well, once again, good morning, church. Good morning to you all. For those of you who are new, welcome to Redeemer. Glad you're here. Thanks for coming to visit. 
If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dan. I'm very grateful to serve here as a pastor. Now, by way of orientation, today is the third Sunday in the season of Eastertide. Easter is not just a single day, but an entire season. Uh, not everybody knows that. That's okay. It's new for me as of a couple years ago. I'm sure it's new for you, for some of you, uh, new for some of you as well. Uh, so we're in the season of Eastertide. And during this season, what we're doing as a church together is we are pursuing a sermon series through the New Testament book of First Peter. And we're calling the series Living the Resurrection in the Here and Now. And the idea we're exploring is the idea that the death and resurrection of Jesus does not only have eternal implications for those who put their faith in Jesus, but actually has temporal implications, like in the here and now, in this time, in time and space. Um, in other words, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead changes the way we go about living our lives right now. And over the past couple of weeks, we've talked about resurrection hope, and then last week, resurrection holiness, and this week is, is resurrection authority. And I was joking with somebody earlier, like last week, holiness, this week, authority, like we are really on a roll here. These are two words that nobody likes. And uh, if the next word after this isn't good, like people are going to just kind of quit. So um, I, I think there's actually, I think there's actually something really surprisingly wonderful here for us today. But let's say a prayer and then we'll, then we'll kind of get going. Heavenly Father, I pray that right now the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I don't know about you, but I, I have problems with authority. Um, and I, and I kind of always have. I was that teenager growing up who just loved to kind of pick a good fight with my parents, loved to argue. Um, my siblings were calm, good-natured, obedient, responsible, mature. But me, being the oldest, I kind of felt like, you know, there was, there was some debate over the right way to do things. And so I was that kid who would wait until about 10.45 p.m., like right as we're all saying goodnight to each other, and then bring up something to argue about. And I have this memory of my dad, like rolling his eyes and walking up the stairs and kind of going, honey, you're on your own, and leaving me and my mom arguing in the kitchen. And now I'm a dad and I have kids. And you know what they like to do? They like to argue. <laughs> and my parents are just cracking up that I am now living through so much of what I put them through. Um, it just kind of comes around. But my, my problems with authority were, were beyond the family. I remember in ninth grade, I went out for JV basketball at my school. And um, up until this point, my, my athletic career had gone pretty well. On every team I had been on up until this point, I was always a starter, sometimes a captain, and I just kind of assumed, well, that's kind of how it goes. So I go out for JV basketball, I make the team, but then I get to the first game and I'm not a starter. And you guys got to understand, for me as a ninth grader, this was catastrophic. And so I, you know, try to argue with my coach about it. That doesn't go very well. And then I complain to my parents. That doesn't go very well either. And so there I am riding the bench, riding the pine. And I'm just, just, the whole season is just miserable for me. I can't handle this authority that has sidelined me and not given me what I thought was rightfully mine. But I always consoled myself by telling myself that this guy's not a very good coach. I mean, he's just, he's not, he just clearly doesn't know what he's doing. I mean, he benched me, come on. And then later, it's a true story, about a year ago, I got an email from a friend of mine that we 
went through high school together and he played on that team. And the email was an article from ESPN telling the story of this coach leading a college team that had never been to the NCAA tournament before to the tournament, to March Madness for the very first time. And he's winning all kinds of awards for his coaching. Turns out he's a great coach, <laughs> which I do not want to hear. <laughs> I have problems with authority. In my first job out of college, I had a boss that I just could not get along with. And he was a little bit aggressive in the way that he exercised his authority over me. And I just chafed under that. And I worked for him for five years and I was just mad for five years about the way that he wielded authority over me. And in fact, when I left that job, I checked myself into counseling because I knew I had problems with authority. And I knew that if I wasn't careful, I was gonna take those problems with authority into my next job and my next job and my next job. And so some of you have been to counseling before, and if you haven't, kind of here's how that first session normally goes. You kind of sit in the waiting room, then they let you in, you go and sit in the office and you sit down. And most therapists will begin with the same question in session one. They'll usually say something like, why don't you tell me why we're here? <laughs> and I remember that very first counseling session, I sat down and this very kind man said in a very gentle voice, Dan, why don't you tell me why we're here? And I just kind of said, I have problems with authority <laughs> and began to tell him the whole sad tale. I have problems with authority. Uh, Americans, more than any other society in the history of the world, I think are anti-authority. Our nation is like founded on problems with authority. Uh, Benjamin Franklin wrote, the first responsibility of every citizen is to question authority. All right, United States, we're off to a strong start, right? <laughs> every American kind of exists in like varying degrees of libertarianism. Like we can talk about conservatives and progressives and Republicans and Democrats all day long, but like Americans are all libertarians to some extent. Like we just don't like authority all that much. And we tend to mock authority. Um, we, we love uh, the way that people like Shakespeare just make fun of those that have positions of authority. Shakespeare writes, but man, proud man, dressed in a little brief authority, most ignorant of what he is most assured, his glassy essence like an angry ape plays such fantastic tricks before high heaven as to make, make angels weep. Just making fun of people that wield any kind of authority. We have this natural kind of built-in resistance to authority. Oscar Wilde writes, whenever there's a man who exercises authority, there's another man who resists authority. Like, as soon as somebody becomes in charge of something, there's someone else who doesn't want that person to be in charge, right? We have problems with authority. The thing is, if you're a Christian, which I know not everybody is here in the room, but, but some of us here are followers of Jesus. And, and we tend to think that our issues in, with authority come from what Christians call sin or the fall into sin. That like we live in a broken world, and in this broken world, there's authority, there's bad authority, and then we have to like deal with that authority, maybe even submit to that authority. And that's part of the sinfulness and the brokenness of the world. And the interesting news for us this morning is that is actually not true. Authority and submission to authority is actually baked into the fabric of the universe and goes back even before what we call the fall into sin. Listen, if you can. Authority and submission exist within the Trinity, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son and the Spirit joyfully and cheerfully submitting to the authority of God the Father. That, that, that relational dynamic of authority and submission is a part of who God is. 
Before there's any creation, that dynamic is a part of who God is. And then out of that joyful authority and submission that exists within the relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the Trinity comes creation. God creates the world, sets human beings in the world, and humans are meant to both submit to authority and also wield authority. This is part of how human beings reflect the, home, the Holy Trinity, both submitting to authority and wielding authority, reflecting that authority and submission dynamic that exists in God himself. Now, now we get to the fall into sin. But of course, things go sideways. Human beings don't want to submit to authority. They usurp God's authority, refusing to submit, grasping for more power, and the world is cast into the brokenness and the fallenness of sin. Now abuses of authority come onto the scene and all of the pain that comes along with it. But Jesus, God in the flesh, enters into all of those abuses of authority and does so in a surprising way, coming not to conquer, but rather coming to submit. Jesus takes on the form of a servant, submitting both to God the Father and to others. He submits himself to humiliation and torture and death. And in doing so, Jesus subverts the authority and the power of this world. And the church, this new humanity that Jesus creates out of his resurrection, are the people who seek no power of their own, but rather are a people of what we might call redemptive submission in the way of Jesus. That's the church. And the future that the church looks forward to is a future of a reordered world where humans again take up their rightful place under God and over the world, resuming their place within the created order, reflecting once again the redemptive authority and submission that exists and has always existed within God himself. Now, I'm taking your time to describe all of that because you've got to understand the big story of authority and submission that the Bible tells about the world in order to understand our text this morning. Whenever we come to any particular part of the Bible, especially, this is especially important when you, when you hit a part of the Bible that is a little uncomfortable, which our text is this morning, right? You have to frame it within the larger biblical story in order to understand it well. The Bible has a lot to say about authority and submission, and the text that we're gonna read is part of that larger story. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at this text and what we're going to see is that the gospel enables us to relate to authority differently. That the resurrection of Jesus from the dead enables us to relate to authority differently. Um, One of the things that we say here around Redeemer is that we are a church devoted to what we call gospel formation for missional presence. And that we do this through the seven practices of the ancient church. And if you have one of those liturgies that you got when you walked in, if you open that up to, to the kind of the front inside cover, you can read more about gospel formation for missional presence and the seven practices there. But these practices are story, identity, belonging, virtue, context, vocation, and imagination. And when it comes time to think about how to relate to authority, it's a context practice. It's a how do I inhabit my place and my time? How do I relate to the world around me as a follower of Jesus? And what we're gonna do as we look at this is we're gonna talk about submission and authority And true to form, we're going to do so from a couple different angles. And if you're the kind of person that takes notes, here are your categories, okay? We're going to talk about practicing submission. Then we're going to talk about suffering in submission. And then finally, we'll conclude with imitating submission. So practicing and suffering and imitating. Practicing, suffering, imitating. Let's begin with practicing. I'm going to reread the first four verses of this particular section so we've got it fresh in our minds. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. 
Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. What we've got here is the who, why, how, and when of submitting to authority. The who, why, how, and when of submission to authority. First, the who. It's every human institution. That's what the text says. And if you get into the, the, the original Greek language here, you could also translate it every human creature. It's a little bit unclear in the original language whether or not the apostle Peter meant every institution, meaning like organization, government, police force, you know, university, or whether he meant every human creature, like every human being that you interact with. But since he uses the word every, it's pretty fair to say, I think he's talking about just about everything. Like submit to everyone, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to other people as well. Peter's going to go on in the next sections of this particular letter to talk about husbands and wives mutually submitting to each other, and then to talk about brothers and sisters in the church submitting to one another. The point is that submission to other people is standard practice for a follower of Jesus. Standard practice for a follower of Jesus. And in order to understand this relationship to authority that a Christian has, and again, I know not everybody's a Christian, but in order to understand it, here's what you got to know. One theologian puts it this way, the very word authority has the word author. An author is someone who creates and possesses a particular work. Insofar as God is the foundation of all authority, he exercises that foundation because he is the author and the owner of creation. He is the foundation upon which all other authority stands or falls. So we have to understand is that from a biblical and Christian perspective, all authority, all human authority, all institutional authority is derivative of God's authority. It means that when we submit to earthly authorities, what we're doing is we are practicing submitting to God. In other words, how do you know if you're the kind of person who submits to God? It's uh, evidenced in the way that you go about submitting to other people. Uh, to put it negatively, there's no such thing, there's no such creature as a Christian who only submits to God but won't submit to anybody else. That creature doesn't exist. No such thing. Not possible. The way we go about submitting to God, the way we practice our submission to God, is in the way that we go about submitting to other people. Now, if that's the who, here's the why. The why, according to this text, is to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Let me, we got to kind of pan the camera out for a second and give a little bit of historical context. First century Roman Empire. Rome is worried about these new religions and cults and kind of spiritualities that are popping up because they might undermine the social stability of the Roman Empire. One of the concerns about the early church was that it would be a cult that would cause people to rebel, to rise up in arms, little literal arms, against the empire. And so one positive result that Peter the author is naming is that submitting to earthly civil authorities will quiet the common objection that Christians are bad for society. This is one of those interesting times where 
we have something in common with the first century audience. And if I preached this sermon 50 years ago, that wouldn't be true, right? Because you go back in time 50 years in Richmond, Virginia, and most people kind of generally assume that the church is good for society. That's kind of the general assumption. But is that still true? It is not, right? The common assumption now is that the church and followers of Jesus, Christians, are actually bad for society, right? That is something that first century followers of Jesus experienced as well. And part of how the Apostle Peter is addressing that and helping them live out the implications of the resurrection is by helping them see that the way they relate to civil authorities has tremendous implications for the place of the church in society. Now, if that's the who and the why, here's the how. He writes, live as people who are free, using your freedom to serve. We tend to think of, or at least I tend to think of, authority and freedom as opposed to each other. Like I can either be under authority or I can be free, right? But his point seems to say the opposite, that authority and freedom actually go together. And if you need kind of a, a, a image or a, a mental picture to kind of help you get your mind around that, think about the way that our musicians and vocalists led us in singing just a few minutes ago. One of the pieces of authority that they all had to submit to in order to lead us well together was to play in the same key, right? If each individual musician and vocalist just kind of wanted to be totally free from every possible constraint, they wouldn't be able to play together and they wouldn't be able to lead us well together. There had to be some form of submission happening first in order for them to play freely. If you've ever been to uh, you know, a jazz bar or something, you will, one, of the times, one of the things that you'll see is you'll see musicians on the stage kind of have a quick huddle and what's happening in that moment is they're agreeing on what key they're gonna play in. <laughs> and then they go out and then there's freedom to jam and to riff and to kind of go all sorts of different fun and creative directions, lots of freedom. But first there has to be a quick moment of authority and submission before comes the freedom of playing and creating well. And the kind of freedom that Peter has in mind here is the freedom of someone who is born into freedom. He's thinking of baptism. As baptized people, he's saying to the first century church, you're free people, you're not slaves. But he's writing to people who actually have very little agency or power in life. Their existence is slave-like. Not, not the kind of chattel slavery that, that the United States experienced in its history, but these are people who have a lot of heavy authority over them in their work, in their family life, in their relationships. They have very little agency over this. And so what Peter is saying is, well, what choices do you have? You have the power to choose to serve, to choose to not be, not be truly enslaved. And he's not saying be passive, be a doormat, let people just kind of roll right over you. It's actually the opposite of that. He's saying, don't be passive. Don't be a doormat. Use the freedom you have to choose to serve. Use your freedom to actively serve and honor. Okay, if that's the who and the why and the how, what about the when? When do you do this? Well, he writes at the very end of this section, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is the when. Freedom to serve and submit at the convergence of those three. Three points of submission. The church, God, and civil authorities. Fear and respect for God governs all. It's the umbrella under which all the other kind of authorities and submissions operate. And so he's saying, love the church, honor the city, honor the authorities that you have in your life, but do so under the umbrella of fear and respect for God. And just to be clear, this doesn't mean that there aren't good, important moments 
of civil disobedience. Peter is not saying in all times and in all places, no matter what is commanded of you, obey without thinking. That's not what he's saying. And we know that because this fits well within the larger story of authority and submission told in the Bible, in which there are incredible moments of civil disobedience. Think all the way back to the Exodus story. Think about when Pharaoh in Egypt ordered the killing of Hebrew baby boys and the Hebrew midwives disobeyed. Bad law, we're not gonna follow it. Immorality and evil is wickedness is being commanded of us and we must resist. Think about moments of civil disobedience in Babylon when the Israelites are carted off into exile. We talked about this a lot in the fall semester. You got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who refuse to bow down to the statue. You've got the prophet Daniel who refuses to stop praying even when it becomes illegal. These are moments of civil disobedience, but you know what umbrella they all happen underneath of? They all happen underneath the umbrella of the prophet Jeremiah saying to God's people, when you get to Babylon, seek the welfare of the city. The default setting is to be honor and respect and submission Yes, there are rare moments of civil disobedience, but they occur within the normal day in, day out submission to others under the authority of God. One of the ways that we see this work itself out in the history of the church is in the monastic movement that, uh, that develops kind of right in the middle of church history. And I would never expect anybody, if, if you know, hardly anybody to have read this, but there's this old book called The Rule of St. Benedict. It's one of the key texts that began the monastic movement in the history of the church. And you know what it has a lot to say about? It's a lot to say about submission to authority. And in fact, chapter seven of that book has what, it, what Benedict calls 12 steps towards humility, which I thought was kind of funny when I read it, because I sort of thought like the whole 12, you know, number of steps to grow spiritually thing was like kind of something we invented in the 1980s. Turns out, Middle Ages. Like, this is a pretty old thing. So chapter seven, 12 steps towards humility. Step number three is submission to the abbot, submission to the head of the abbey. And in submitting to this particular person, the monk or the nun is to practice submitting to God. Now, what's interesting is that step number three, you know what step number four is? Step number four is, quote, the fourth step of humility is that in this obedience under difficult, unfavorable, even unjust conditions, the person's heart quietly embraces suffering and endures it without weakening or seeking escape. The idea here is that St. Benedict recognized quite, that quite often the experience of having somebody in authority over you is quite painful. And that abuses of power and authority are real they happen inside the church, they happen outside the church, they happen all the time. And that those abuses and the suffering that they create are something that every follower of Jesus has to reckon with and it doesn't disqualify our submission to earthly authorities. So let's talk about that. We've talked about the practice of submission. Now let's talk about the suffering that comes with it. Peter continues in verses 18, 19 to 20 like this. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good 
and suffer for it, you endure. That is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, before we go a step further, we have to recognize the way in which this text has been mishandled and misused with horrible consequences throughout the history of the church. The first half of verse 18 reads like this. Servants, be subject to your masters. And there are all kinds of people in all kinds of places and in all kinds of times that have used those words to justify horrific oppression and enslavement and subjugation of other people, to justify slavery, to justify the subjugation of women and the poor. And some of us might hear these words and immediately almost kind of be triggered and think, oh my goodness, what kind of church am I in here? Why are we talking about this? I mean, this is the kind of thing that the church kind of gets wrong, right? I mean, what, what's, what's going on? How do we understand this? And this, these, these kind of texts are reasons why people end up closing their Bibles and kind of walking away and going, there's nothing here for, more, here for me. There's actually wonderful good news when you think about who is writing this, okay? So who is Peter? Peter is Jewish of Hebrew lineage. Question, what is the great formative moment for the Hebrew people? for the nation of Israel. It's the Exodus, right? Hebrews, Jewish people, know more than anybody else on planet earth, the wickedness and the evil of slavery. Their people, their like national identity is formed out of liberation from slavery. There is zero chance that Peter has in mind any kind of condoning of enslavement or of subjugation of other people when his whole imagination is formed by liberation from slavery. Peter is not condoning the enslavement of people. He is condoning the liberation of the spirit from bitterness and resentment and hatred to the freedom of love and service to others and honoring of others, even those others who are oppressing. So what does he mean when he says it's a gracious thing in the sight of God? Well, he means that when you endure this kind of suffering from abuse of authority, you are extending the grace of God to your oppressors. And I don't know if anybody writes more eloquently about this or embodied this more uh, better than Martin Luther King Jr. I was reading uh, earlier this week a sermon that he wrote in Montgomery, Alabama on November 17th, 1957. And he writes, if I hit you and you hit me, and I hit you back, and you hit me back, and so on. (laughs) This just goes on ad infinitum. It just never ends. Somewhere, somebody must have a little sense, and that's the strong person. The strong person is the person who can cut the chain of hate, the chain of evil. And that is the tragedy of hate, that hate never cuts it off. Hate only intensifies the existence of hate and evil in the universe. Somebody must have religion enough to cut it off and inject into the very structure of the universe that strong and powerful element of love. And Mulcahy saw submission not as an act of weakness, but as an act of strength. Submission not as an act of cowardice, but as an act of love. I was reading earlier this week a commentary on 1 Peter written by a former pastor of mine that I had growing up, a great theologian named Ed Clowney. And he writes about this particular text Masters cannot enslave them because they are Christ's slaves already. Masters cannot humiliate them because they've already humbled themselves in willing subjection. 
The idea is if you are suffering under the weight of somebody else's abusive authority, then the way to actually be free in the midst of that is to, out of respect and honor for God, choose service of the person who is harming you as a way of actually liberating yourself from the oppression they are seeking to put on you. In this, your spirit is free. You're not actually enslaved anymore because you are taking the agency that God has given you in your baptism and you are choosing to use it to serve others willingly and cheerfully in the way of Jesus. That kind of person is never enslaved. Korean pastor, Yane Wan Sun, in 1948, shows us what this looks like. At this time in history, a band of communists came into his village to take control of the town and they, sadly, uh, arrested two members of his family, two of his sons, Matthew and John, and they actually executed his sons, and his sons died as martyrs. Later, after the communists had left the village, a young man in the village named Chai's son was identified as the man who had actually pulled the trigger, actually fired the shots that killed the boys. And he was sentenced by the local village authorities to be executed for his betrayal of villagers. And what Pastor Yanwan's son did was he went to the village authorities and he asked for the charges to be dropped against Chai son and for that young man to be released into his custody so that he could adopt him. And the court, being very normal people, didn't believe him. Yeah, right. You just want vengeance on this guy. No way. We're going to enact justice. You can't get your hands on him. And then the pastor's 13-year-old daughter, Rachel, testified in court that her family indeed wanted to adopt the murderer of her older brothers. And the court wouldn't listen to the pastor, but they did listen to the 13-year-old daughter. And they released Chai's son into the family's custody and they adopted him. Can you imagine that? I struggle to imagine that. The invitation before us here is for the resurrection of Jesus to cause us to relate to authority differently. But at this point, we're kind of going, I can't do that. <laughs> I can barely imagine it, much less live it. So how do you do this? Friends, we do this by remembering how Jesus did this very thing for us. If you still have a liturgy in hand, if you can take it out, look at the, the image on the front cover. What you'll see there is an artistic depiction of Jesus standing before Pontius Pilate. This is the moment when Jesus has been arrested. He's on trial for his life. This is before Jesus goes to the cross. What's happening in this scene? You see Jesus standing up. He's been brought there by soldiers. You see Pilate sitting down. He's kind of got his hand open. Pilate is super relaxed. He's in charge. He's got all the authority. Jesus looks a little concerned, maybe even a little stressed out. It seems like Jesus has no authority in this moment. But from our vantage point in history, what do we know is really going on? There is a confrontation of authority happening here. Pilate asks Jesus, are you a king? And Jesus replies, oh, so mysteriously. Jesus says, that's what you say, which doesn't really answer the question, right? It's not saying yes, it's not saying no. It's saying, all right, man, you said it. There's a confrontation of authority happening here. Who's really in charge? Who actually wields the power and authority? At the earthly level, it seems that Pilate wields all of the authority. And yet, what Jesus is about to do 
in his submission is going to end up overthrowing Pilate. The only reason we even know about Pilate is because of this interaction, right? This interaction didn't happen. We would have forgotten all about him, which is not probably how he thought he was going to be remembered. This is why Peter writes about Jesus in this way as a response to the suffering under the abuses of power and authority that first century followers of Jesus were experiencing. He writes in verses 22, 23, and 24 about Jesus. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. It's the wounds of Jesus that heal you from your bitterness and your anger and your grief and your resentment towards those who oppress you. It's the wounds of Jesus that become a source of power for you. The wounds of Jesus are the strength which you draw on to find the courage to return hate for love, kindness for abuse, and submission for oppression. The idea is if Jesus can submit himself to a crown of thorns and to the scourging whip and to the nails of the cross for you, if he can submit to these things for you, then you can submit to the boss who gives you a hard time, to the parent who rides your case, to the spouse who criticizes you, to the teacher who has it out to get you, to the politician who passes laws you don't like, and to the police officer who's just on a power trip. We've talked about practicing submission and then suffering under submission. Now it's time to talk about imitating, imitating submission. Peter concludes this section with these words. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you example, and then here's the line, so that you might follow in his steps. You know, there's the old saying that life imitates art more than art imitates life. The idea being that when something compelling captures your imagination, you begin to like imitate it. You begin to conform your life to it. This is why you can like see an outfit on Instagram and then immediately want to go buy it, right? You're like, I saw something like beautiful and now I want to be it, right? This is what we do with Jesus. In the humility and the submission of Jesus, we find something so compelling and so beautiful that we begin to conform our lives to it. We begin to imitate the submission of Jesus. And so for some of us, this is a brand new category. You've never thought about it this way before. For some of you, and maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. Maybe you've been in church for a long time. But up until this point, you've only thought about Jesus as Savior. You've never thought of him as rabbi or teacher. And you've thought about being a Christian as being someone who is saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that's true but maybe you haven't thought about what you might call apprenticing yourself to the way of Jesus, beginning to imitate the way of Jesus, conforming your life to the habits and practices of Jesus. Imitating Jesus, listen if you can. This sounds a little bit silly that we have to say it this clearly, but we can't make any mistakes here. Imitating Jesus is a practice, not a belief. If you leave this morning thinking that the most important thing is that you believe you're supposed to imitate Jesus, you've missed it. <laughs> the most important thing is that you actually imitate Jesus. And you imitate Jesus not with your mind, but with your mouth and your body, in the things you say, in the things you do, following in the footsteps of Jesus. 
How do we do this? Where do you begin? You begin by simply identifying the authorities that you have over you. They have names, they have faces. Who are they? Let's take this out of the abstract. There are real people that have a measure of authority over you. Who are they? Can you identify them? As you go to small group sometime this week, and I, and I hope that you get a chance to, but if you're in small group this week, this might be a place that you begin. You might begin talking about who are these people that have authority over, over me? What are their names? What are their faces? And then you might think about speaking well of them. You know, one of the things that I, I've realized over the years is that I've spent far too much of my life on one hand, kind of bad-mouthing the authorities that I have over me, the politicians I don't like, the leaders I have to submit to, like all the kind of people who wield authority over me that I find annoying and irritating and bad leaders and all that kind of stuff. And then I insist that my kids obey me, right? And only recently have I begun to realize, wait a minute, <laughs> over here I'm undermining the whole idea of submitting to authority. And then over here I am insisting that somebody submit to my authority. And that is not the way of Jesus. So it begins with identifying the authorities and then speaking well of them and then willingly and cheerfully obeying them all under the context of fearing God. For kids, this begins with parents, cheerfully and willingly respecting and obeying and honoring parents, not because your parents are right all the time. Of course they're not. Parents are wrong all the time, right? You know that, kids. <laughs> How often are your parents wrong? All the time. And I'm not saying there aren't appropriate moments to politely and respectfully disagree and to ask your parents to have a conversation about it. But the default setting is honor. Students, it begins with teachers and administrators, these people who are in positions of authority over you. Adults, it begins with bosses, police, elected officials, other people that wield authority over us. And listen, I, I just want to remind you as we conclude here, I am right there with you in the midst of this. I have problems with authority. This is not easy for me. And the Lord has had over the years a sense of humor with me about my authority issues. Because now, as of this morning, I am under more authority than I've ever been at any other point in my life. And it's a little crazy sometimes when I stop to think about it. My life is now governed by the doctrine and polity and traditions and ordinances of the Anglican communion. And there are like binders of notebooks, hundreds of pages long detailing what my life is supposed to be like. I have so much authority over me right now. And when I got ordained, you know what I had to do? I had to get down on my knees in front of another person. Yes, in front of God, but, but also in front of another person, a bishop. And I had to take a vow of obedience, an oath of obedience. And you know what the strangest, most miraculous thing is of all? Is that most, not all the time, but most of the time, I'm grateful for it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you yourself both wield authority and submit to authority. And you have made us to be these creatures who both wield authority and also submit to authority. And Lord, this is so hard for us. So would you please, by your Holy Spirit, help us to live out the resurrection in the here and now. And would you help the resurrection of you, Lord Jesus, to transform the way that we relate to all of the authority in our lives. In your name we pray, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.